APRA acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles. In this episode, we're thinking about the future of aged care. As communities, it's always important for us to be aware of and have compassion for the needs of the older people among us. It's a segment of society whose voice may sometimes be lost. They may be othered or portrayed as a group rather than the individuals, the humans, who they are. This conversation is also timely as here in Australia, we've just had the Royal Commission into Aged Care and it's a significant moment to consider what the future could and should hold for our aged care system. So for this important topic, I'm joined by some wise and important guests. Let's meet Alison Warrington. I'm the CEO of Community Based Support, which is a not-for-profit disability and aged care services provider in Tasmania. We operate statewide. So most of the services that my organisation looks after is um, in home and community care. And we have social supports through sort of day centres that we have in different communities. Dr Linda Mellors. I'm the CEO and Managing Director of Regis Aged Care and I've been here now for about 18 months after a 20-year career in the Victorian acute health sector um, where I worked across uh, government and not-for-profit health systems uh, ranging everything from um, uh, pre-birth planning all the way through to palliative care. I'm a, a scientist um, by uh, background, I took a really um, a, an academic pathway um, for a long time so before I actually moved into the health sector. And Dr Joseph Ibrahim. I'm the head of the Health Law and Ageing Research Unit at the Department of Forensic Medicine, School of Public Health at Monash University. I graduated in in medicine and went into aged care and have worked as a geriatrician since the early 1990s and still active in uh, clinical practice. I did my PhD in quality of care and uh, was part of the team at the coroner's unit in Victoria assisting the investigations of premature deaths in hospital and in residential aged care. Um, And so I've got a long-standing interest in in aged care, enjoy working in the field with the people and seen a lot of changes over the last 20, 25 years. And uh, I guess um, these were heightened both with the Royal Commission and the COVID pandemic. Could we start just as a kind of framing for what we're going to talk about today, what some of the key findings are emerging from that commission that resonate most with you? The three major findings are, in essence, one in three residents uh, receives either suboptimal care, is neglected or um, suffers abuse. And so... Um, the, the sector as a whole is not performing well and it's a systemic issue. It's not one bad provider or one bad um, doctor or, or nurse. The Royal Commission's essentially said that we need a new rule book, which is a new act. We need a new regulator, which is a, a, a new umpire. And we need a third party to oversight um, how this operates. Commissioners disagreed on some very key factors, which I think undercuts what's possible um, to be developed. Um, and 
they have um, focused on um, different models for funding, but not stressed the importance of value for money. If you deliver better care, then you save money from not having to um, pick up the mess from poor care. More money is clearly needed. How you go about getting that is in part by making a better system. It's very clear that we need systemic improvement across the whole sector. Um, this is a sector that is grossly undervalued. It, it's not supported in the way that other sectors are supported. And that particularly um, coming out of the acute health sector, that the differences are really confronting in terms of the support um, that's provided and the funding that's provided. Um, so we know that we need systemic improvement. We know we need more staff on the floor and we need a broader range of staff on the floor. That, that will cost money. Um, so that the money question uh, can't be ignored and the sector needs a lot more funding. Um, we also need fit for purpose regulation. So the regulation that we have at the moment is compliance based, and that's a disincentive for people to come and work in our sector. And that's something that needs to be fixed urgently. Um, we also need to make sure that the accommodation that we provide is, again, it's fit for purpose, and it meets the diverse needs and preferences of the diverse communities and people um, in Australia who are looking for aged care. Mm. Alison, could you talk about the various parts of this system which you interact with and that you see and how the Commission will affect the work that you do? In home and community care, I, I term it as a bit of a smorgasbord in terms of what came out of the, the findings. The, the integrated system that's suggested or been recommended in terms of combining some of the programs in home care, Commonwealth Home Support, for example, and residential aged care, I think is a, is a welcome recommendation. Um, the focus of the increased focus on compliance and quality, I absolutely agree with. I think, however, that um, again, I'm probably repeating what has been said, Funding and resourcing is critical. Um, the cost of compliance is enormous. It already is. And um, more compliance only means that we need to be resourced and funded appropriately to ensure that we can meet um, the obligations that will be put on providers in that, um, in that case. There was a recommendation that came out to prioritising the release of home care packages. Now, this is a big part of um, what my organisation does in terms of service delivery. There needs to be a whole focus on um, career opportunities, um, the attractiveness of the career to people, development, training and ongoing support and appropriate wages for people in the sector as well. So, um, you know, continuing for the theme of issues there. Rural and regional and remote access is also important. Now, I'm in Tasmania and probably people um, don't probably consider the whole of Tasmania to be regional or rural, but we have areas in Tasmania that it can be quite challenging to deliver to deliver services to. And for example, Bruny Island. You catch a ferry to Bruny Island, it's not very far away, but unless you have someone that actually lives at Bruny Island that wants to work in your organisation to deliver services, again, we don't have enough funding, if that's not the case, to be able to travel workers to and from some of these locations with the funding that we currently receive. So we have these challenges. Uh, so they all need to be taken into consideration. So the workforce 
recommendations that came out of it as well. Um, again, funding, resourcing, training, attracting people into the sector is really important. The aged care system would be in a real mess if it wasn't for the personal care workers and nurses that are currently in there. The, they have attained the requirements that have been asked of them. And so I think it's unfair to describe them as um, lacking from that point of view. That They've done what's been asked of them. What we failed to do, and this is where I go back to what the Royal Commission has failed to do, is to point the, um, the reason as to why our personal care workers not trained to the standard that contemporary society and contemporary practice requires is a failing of the education and training arm of government and the portfolio. It's not up to the, you know, the 55-year-old migrant that's coming to make a living to say, I know what the standard should be and I demand better education and training. That solely sits with the education and training um, part of government and so that's not been there. So we've had the Royal Commission and a set of recommendations has emerged. Linda, what have you seen as the response and are you hopeful? Is it what we need? So I think the, the response has been um, one of great interest right across uh, society. So there's been a lot of media reporting um, during and post the Royal Commission. And we know from government that it's been um, a key feature of the, the um, FY22 budget and included in the forward estimates. So we know aged care is on the radar and that is a fantastic place for us to be and for older Australians to be. And the budget response uh, is is significant. Um, it's, it's a larger budget package than the living longer, living better uh, response. And we know it will go um, some way to addressing the longstanding issues that are in our, in our sector. Uh, there's still much more work to be done. So the funding announcements um, have only recently been made. There's an enormous amount of policy work that still needs to be done and a, a transition plan so that we can implement um, the policy recommendations that, that government has agreed to. On the night of the budget, um, that the government released its response to the Royal Commission findings as well as its response um, financially. And I, I think this was disappointing in it doesn't allow any real discussion or debate about the government's thoughts around the actual recommendation. The government um, yeah, puts up roughly 17 to $18 billion for aged care over the next four to five years. And so to many people, it looks like the problem's being addressed. Although there's new money coming into the sector, the new money is not enough to address the existing problems. It's not enough to sustain or build an aged care system for 2030. Systemic reform and funding for that reform is um, much later. And we're, we're probably two budgets and at least an election away from that money coming into aged care. So I'm a bit sceptical about whether that will truly happen. The recommendations response from the government um, is detailed. 
it's important when you read it that you get past the first line because for the vast majority of the recommendations, the government has either accepted, accepted in principle or um, moved on for further um, discussion or debate. You've actually got to go into the, the finer detail to see what's real and what's not. And the area that people were most interested in um, which was to do with increasing staff time for residents. That's um, been accepted by the federal government. And so they've accepted the first item in that um, Royal Commission's recommendation, which is to move from about 180 minutes a day to 200 minutes a day of direct contact for residents. That sounds a positive move. But if you look at the detail, 20-minute um, increase is um, roughly a 10% increase in time provided. The minimum standard that had been set by the Royal Commission was 200 was the uh, next step, and they had wanted far more time with the resident than that. And so that shift... Um, moves us a little bit forward, but not anywhere near to what the Royal Commission had wanted in terms of time. The other interesting thing is that the time to implement is, I think, uh, October 2023. So there's a grace period of around two, two and a half years before that comes into effect. Mm. And um, what have the recommendations meant for you, Alison, especially from the home care perspective? In terms of home care, for example, uh, 80,000 extra home care packages being delivered into the market, which for me in the home care space just brings a whole lot more workforce challenges which already existed. So the budget, again, has contributed some money towards workforce, more upskilling of the current workforce, but doesn't address wages. So on one hand, yes, we're going to commit to upskilling and expect people to have some level of higher qualification, but we're not going to address uh, the, the low wages that people are paid in the sector. So very welcoming in terms of what's been um, what's been delivered, but a lot more to go. And as Linda has said, it's the starting point for a whole lot more activity, a whole lot more work, and certainly a whole lot more engagement with the sector. On the outside, it all looks glossy and shiny and terrific and the government's all in and aged care is going to be improved. But the detail is that the government is offering smaller amounts of support than requested over a longer time period and not reaching the objective that's desired um, or stipulated by the Royal Commission. And I, I think this is where the community needs to be far more engaged and active because the fight, and it will be a fight, the fight to uh, make aged care something desirable and fair is going to require far more um, activism and advocacy um, as each step's rolled out and each new committee or discussion group or working group is set up is to be in there influencing that. A well-supported and fairly paid workforce will be much more stable. A stable workforce contributes to continuity of care and continuity of carer, which we know is fantastic for our residents, families and staff.
a stable workforce is better for the provider because there are a lot of costs associated with turnover. So all of these factors are interrelated and we need to make sure that we are addressing all of the systemic issues in our sector, not just picking off um, parts of the problem and fixing it in a way that will not address the transformation that the sector requires. Linda, could you talk about the workforce, how people are being affected by, by COVID and by the, the potential of systemic change? I mean, systemic change, even if it's for improvement, can be unsettling and, and difficult. What has it meant for the people around you? I think it's really um, crucial that people understand that this is a workforce that has been consistently demonised over recent years. So when you put a, a face to the workforce, you know, I'd really like people to understand that these are um, generally low paid women workers, about 50% are migrants. They don't have a strong voice. And I think that there are a lot of us in the sector who are really advocating for these workers. Whilst they may not be highly qualified, um, they may not have had sufficient training, I would not describe them as unskilled. There is absolute skill in providing this kind of um, care and this kind of service to vulnerable older people. So I think we need to remember that. In terms of what um, COVID has meant for this workforce and what the Royal Commission has meant for this workforce, it's just been more demonisation and generalisation. When I go out and meet our workers, they are by and large salt of the earth, kind and compassionate people who are providing care for somebody else's loved one as if they were their own. Um, the demonisation is unjust and it, it disturbs me enormously. Uh, and I, I feel in many respects that this group of workers have been a really um, easy target. I, I look at the, the registered nurses and the enrolled nurses in the workforce, and they receive much less support than um, their colleagues, say, in the acute sector. Um, there is an expectation of perfection in aged care on a very, very low uh, budget. For me, I think the, the workforce needs more people to be looking into our sector and more people with contemporary thinking around quality and safety, safety science and improvement so that we have a supported workforce who can deliver the kind of care that they want to deliver and that we want them to deliver. Joe, what's it like for people who are receiving this care? I mean, we've just spoken about and we've all experienced how difficult the pandemic has been. Uh, particularly, I imagine, for this part of our community. Can you talk about what life is like for our elderly population? I, I, I can only really describe what I see with my patients. And I, I think I'm always reluctant to um, be seen as a representative because I'm not, I'm not 80 and I, I don't have a disability. And so I, I don't actually know what life's really like for them. Generally speaking, the, the um, cohort that we provide care for are kind, forgiving um, and self-sacrificing and uh, you know, typically called a silent generation related to the depression and war years. And so their expectations and self-sacrifice means that um, both professionally and as a society, we've gotten away with um, suboptimal care for a long time. 
and yeah, my patients or the patients I, I provide care for um, make do and are grateful for almost anything that comes their way. Their children are far more demanding and at times have unrealistic expectations about what clinical practice or aged care can actually provide and that we're not able to um, correct the, the harms that have occurred over the years or repair relationships or, or perfectly preserve someone um, or, or return their youth to them. And at times, um, families um, uh, have often a, a lot of guilt and fear that's not managed well by um, staff, uh, and I mean generally through healthcare and aged care, and so that a lot of that gets played out with unrealistic expectations when what we need is a better um, sort of psychosocial model that's helping um, children to come to terms with the ageing, frailty and disability of their parents and also to better reflect that um, how they're now advocating for their parents may be a reflection of um, unmet or issues to do with guilt and fear. There's also a fair bit of advocacy for um, uh, stepping up care that's um, either inappropriate um, in terms of what's being requested and not, not in the interest or preference of the patient. Um, and it's very difficult for older people to resist the um, urgings of um, their children. Really the hard part about aged care is it's a bit of everything in one place. Today we have someone going skydiving, someone going to hospital for a checkup, someone going to hospital because they're really sick, someone who's dying. And they're all in the, you know, they're all in the rooms down this corridor. And you're supposed to accommodate that. And that's that's hard to get a model around. And aged care hasn't kept pace with healthcare. So the ideas of um, evidence-based or evidence-informed practice is not there nor supported to the same degree. The issues about systems-based thinking, quality and patient safety systems thinking have not come across to aged care. Issues to do with clinical governance, issues to do with open disclosure, issues to do with a just reporting system, issues to do with better understanding uh, the root causes of why things go wrong have not crossed over from health. And so aged care is way behind where it could be. And this Royal Commission um, starts to bring us back into the 21st century, but the, the recommendations do not prepare us for 2030. Well, I'd love to add to that, to, to, to what um, Joe's just said, because as I said, I came from the primary health sector and I came from general practice training and education for nine years as a CEO. And, um, and I've come from there, from how on earth do we spend all this money we've got before the end of the financial year to counting pennies, basically. Um, and that's exactly right. There has been a lot of um, focus in the healthcare sector. And when I moved into the community sector, although I 
saw it as an extension of health, not actually totally new because I absolutely see our role in the community sector as all about health and wellbeing for our clients and the people that we serve. But there's, there's probably, you know, 20 to 25 years difference in primary health and aged care. We are way behind in the aged care or in the community sector in general than the health sector, definitely. Let me come in here to remind you that we have many other episodes of Taking Care in our back catalogue, like our episode Brett Sutton and Jeanette Young in the spotlight. Take a quick listen. In reaching out for support, um, I really found mechanisms to be able to uh, link back in, look after myself and um, find some space to, to connect with uh, loved ones. That's a really critical thing for us as human beings. You can find that episode and all of our other episodes by searching for Taking Care in your podcast player. Now let's get back to Alison, Linda and Joe. Do you have any examples of specific issues that you see um, patients and their families advocating for change around you? Yes, certainly. I think that um, the most distressing thing is that the people that are advocating for change are often middle-aged daughters arguing for something better for their father or mother, and they're often seen as being vexatious and um, they're undermined. People don't believe their account uh, or details unless there's a video recording of it that there's no belief, um, and that's just strong. And almost the majority of cases that I've heard accounts of have been real. Um, and it's that the children get worn down by the system um, and it just loops on itself. I think that um, the, the sector is way behind because um, the disability sector and intellectual disability was looking at human rights and um, being able to exercise choice and autonomy back in the 70s. And we're still having trouble now in advocating for residents to be able to choose how they want to live their life and what brings pleasure to them in the area of dignity of risk is still well underdeveloped and underdone. And you have this contradiction within the regulator where, you know, the, the standard one says that um, residents have freedom of choice and you should support them. And then I think um, standard three or four says you must keep them clinically safe. And then standard eight says the board will sort all of this out um, without any real direction. And so I think it makes it incredibly difficult when there's not good, clear direction for the sector as a whole. And I don't think it's fair or right for every home to have to work out what this all means because these are incredibly complex issues that need guidance, direction, and consistency in how they're addressed so that staff and providers know what is expected. And that guidance currently doesn't exist. And so accounts that I've heard is people that were previously independent in the community that now need care in residential aren't allowed out you might not be able to smoke or drink alcohol. You can't bring food in um, from home. Um, you can't help with preparation of meals. And there are brilliant examples where these things happen and people say, well, well, that's fabulous. But on the whole, that's not what occurs. And 
Um, although I, I'm not advocating smoking and no one should ever smoke, um, people have a right to, if that's what they want to do, to smoke. Um, but that's not facilitated. Um, the consumption of alcohol, there, there'll be restrictions depending on what's available and where. Your ability to come and go requires monitoring rather than an assessment of your capacity to make that decision. Um, there's, there's a whole lot of little things that mean a lot to older people that remain hidden. And do you want to sit on the toilet and be watched so that you don't fall over? Or do you want privacy? Because that's your bowel will only work when I'm not being watched. And I choose to take the risk, but I'm not allowed to because the rules say um, you have to protect me from myself. I mean, it's difficult because sometimes it feels like you're choosing between um, physiological health, not not smoking, or psychological health. Of this is a comfort that I that I cherish. Um, Linda, could you talk about some of the things that you see um, people in aged care wanting and needing, and those needs not being met at the moment? Yes, yeah, so I think the main one is time. Um, so the feedback that we have from residents and families is actually really supportive of the workforce. They just wish that they had more time. They can see that they're rushed. Um, and, you know, again, there's really good literature that shows that if a patient or a resident gets a sense of staff being busy and rushed, they're less likely to express their needs because they don't wish to be a burden. And of course, we want them to express their needs. I think uh, to the question of families and advocacy, um, most families advocate really well um, for their loved one. And as a sector, Alison and Joe have both mentioned how far behind we are from like sectors. And I agree, we are a couple of decades behind the thinking and the regulation that we need. So involving everybody in the care and safety of a resident, we know that that works. You know, families will see things, notice things that should be helping us in terms of the delivery of care and service that is personal, safe and effective um, for that resident. Every fall is seen as a failure. Now, older people sometimes fall. They fall over at home, they fall over in the community. To have an expectation that people won't fall in aged care is unrealistic when you look at the ageing process. So we want to minimise risk, um, but we want to allow people to take risk. And this is where sometimes um, I believe it's fed by the, the public narrative that any incident that occurs is a failure of staff, it's a failure of the provider, rather than somebody saying, well, actually, you know what, I choose to walk without my walker. I don't want to use the walker. I want to go outside where the ground is uneven. Um, I want to go in the garden and I want to step into the garden bed and prune the roses. I think we need a public conversation around dignity of risk and we need fit for purpose regulation so that adults can continue to behave as adults. We're infantilising older people by telling them what they can and they can't do and it's not right. We've spoken about family members advocating for, for example, for their parents, but Alison, there are lots of 
older members of our society who don't have family members to advocate for them. And then we as a society need to have a sense of empathy for older people in order to ensure that they're treated well. Do you see that in your work? Do people respect and have empathy for older people and their needs? Uh, definitely I see it because I think that those that work in the sector def definitely do have empathy for older people and their needs um, and, and that's why they're doing the, the jobs that they do and I do see it and certainly you see it from family members of older people. I'm not sure about the younger generation when it comes to those outside their family. I've been talking to some young people including my son and I was sort of asking him about empathy for older people. Um, and, you know, his response was, well, if I saw an old person walking across the road and they were struggling, I'd probably help, um, you know, but, but not that sort of general wider sort of empathy. I think there's so much that our younger generation is grappling with at the moment. There are things that, that are in place that we didn't have um, for ourselves or our parents, those of us who, who I've got one parent that still remains, but, um, you know, we've got a lot of mental health issues that are up coming, um, not just the younger generation, but we've got this whole social media that's that's taken over the world. And I think um, I'm not sure about the wider general population having empathy for, for older people to the extent that it may have been many, many years ago. And I think part of that too comes from, um, Joe mentioned before, um, about our older generation saying, look, it's okay, I'll make do, I'll be, I'll be all right. And I guess when we talk about system changes, the, the broader society is also part of that system, um, I think, and that voice really counts and that mindset needs to be shifted. Linda? So my parents are older and uh, during COVID, you know, they only live five minutes away from me, but we couldn't um, go to see them. Um, uh, sometimes we would go and we'd wave at them from a distance and for them the separation from their grandchildren and their loved ones was it, it just had such a deep and lasting impact and it did for the kids as well you know that really missed their grandparents um, I'm one of four daughters so you know my parents get a lot of involvement a lot of free advice and you know stacks and stacks of help um, one thing that absolutely thrilled um, all of us was during COVID, the number of neighbours that checked in on my mum and dad that said, we're going to the shops, is there anything that you need? Um, people passing their phone numbers to mum and dad. Um, they had four neighbours pass their phone numbers to say, we know your daughters can't come. If you need anything at all, call us. Um, so I found COVID, um, I don't know, people were checking in more and there was much more messaging around checking in on the older um, people around you. Um, so, I, I mean, I still see really lovely interactions, but but there's so much fear-mongering that's out there that, that's detrimental. And it would be great if we could, uh, you know, again, just celebrate the diversity and the achievements of older people, providing the level of support that they need at the time. What do you think some signs would be that we um, there there are real improvements? Things that you think um, will will reflect back that there's there's systemic change on its way. It's in train. There's probably two things. One is that um, residential aged care is part of the community, and two that people um, are not fearful of going there. Um, 
and that's young people aren't fearful of going there because a lot of the pushback that I have when we release work is everyone says they have a solution to um, their life and they plan never to go into aged care and would prefer death to going in. So I think that when younger people can look at aged care and say, I can see a future and um, that involves aged care and I'm not fearful of it. I think the issue and people want um, more empathy and I think you're not going to get more empathy because some of my older patients don't identify with my older patients with dementia or with a greater level of disability. Empathy doesn't get us there. I've actually got far more faith in the junior or in the younger um, generation because they feel very strongly about social justice and they feel very strongly about being fair. And I think that the, and most of my staff that stay and work in aged care in research are in that 25 to 35 year old bracket that are outraged that people aren't treated fairly. And it's not their age that matters, it's are you being treated the same as everyone else? And I think we'll see change um, from that. Um, I think that uh, what we actually need is a leadership at a senior level in society because the vulnerable population we're talking about can't stand up or represent themselves. None of my patients can stand up and talk and say, I'm not going away. Um, they, they don't have the physical and sometimes perhaps not even the, the, um, the cognitive capacity to maintain a fight for five or 10 years. Mm. And, and for that reason, it's important that they are treated with respect and dignity. Alison, could you talk about what you would like to see change? Look, I think an indicator of change in the future would be um, a very well integrated health and aged care system. It gets talked about in primary health care and it gets talked about in aged care. Um, it'd be great to see that actually happen. Um, for me, uh, it would also be greater staff retention and that is where people are satisfied in the workplace to be able to feel safe and secure and um, supported and acknowledged in their roles. But the other one too is I'm in, in home and community care. So I'm very much about um, people remaining in their homes. That's where they want to be. I think an indicator of um, success and the future will be that people feel really safe in their homes and, and have the support they need to remain in their homes as long as they can to, to live the life that they choose. Yeah, and the responsibility is also on communities to support and ask for this change. And so we need to work together to make sure that we address all of the issues in a holistic approach to be able to make a huge difference in the sector. I absolutely echo um, Alison's words around aged care needs to be seen as part of a continuum of health and social care service. And it's not at the moment, it's, it's seen as been very separate and there hasn't been sufficient engagement from other parts of the, the system. We have clinical indicators that will tell us if we're achieving systemic improvement. The voice of the older person is absolutely critical and they can tell us if they are happy or not with the care and services that are 
provided. And it's, it's fascinating, during COVID, we had 95% support from our residents um, for what we were doing, but we were criticised daily in the media. And the voice of older people, it was just absolutely lost. And I have a lovely story from one of our homes where um, the media was saying they should be absolutely opened up um, to visitation. I had a group of residents at one of our homes um, who said they organised a roster amongst the residents to basically stand guard at the door because they didn't want people coming in at that point in time because the risk in the community was too great and they wanted to be safe. Um, but you know, those their, their voices just haven't been heard sufficiently. I think um, a real simplification and a generalisation I know that happy staff um, will lead to happy residents, will lead to happy families. Um, we must support um, our workforce and we must give them um, the skills and the training and the support that they need to do the job effectively. We need to actually ensure that there's a whole of support and commitment for our sector and for our workers. That way they're going to be able to thrive, they're going to be working in an area that they're passionate in and they're going to be able to continue to improve and uh, continually improve and provide the service delivery and the level of quality and safety that the community expects. So to be able to do that, we need a, a regulatory system that is, I'm going to use the term right touch, we've heard it before, but it needs to be right touch regulation. Uh, we need compliance, but, but not a punitive approach. Uh, and something that's going to offer our consumers and our customers and communities a greater level of flexibility and choice as they age. Thank you, Linda, Alison and Joe, for a conversation that I feel we can't have too many of. It's um, a very important, always timely topic for us to be aware of and start practising that empathy. Thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed being part of the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Taking Care. Please keep in touch with us at communications at opera.gov.au. We always love to hear from you. You can subscribe and listen to previous episodes by searching for Taking Care in your podcast player. See you next time.